0: If you have your Bibles, would you take them and open to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. This is part two of a message that I began last week. I love this story because I can so relate to these two disciples making the trek back home to Emmaus. They are full of questions. Uh, They cannot make sense of their world right now. Uh, They are struggling with doubt and hope is slipping away. I get that. I can identify with that. When we are brutally honest with ourselves and life in this fallen planet, uh, I think that all of us at some point would actually echo their response, which we find there in verse 21. But we were hoping that he was the one to redeem Israel. Who of us in the room have not encountered life, and found ourselves saying, but I was hoping. I mean, but I was hoping that my career would be, but I was hoping that I'd be married by now, but I was hoping we would have children, but I was, I was hoping my kids would turn out, but I was hoping we would grow old together, but I was hoping the treatments would work, but, but I was hoping that the investment would secure our future, but I was hoping God would blank. You can just fill in the blanks. I also love this story because it shows Jesus shows us how we keep going when what we were hoping for doesn't happen. And in fact, I want to say it this way. He shows us how to keep going, men and women, with joy, with conviction, with a, with a courage, with a, with a strength of heart that we may not have even known was available. We're going to put ourselves back in the story by rereading it. It's long, but it's worth the reading. I mentioned last week, N.T. Wright said, immerse yourself in the story and you'll find it inexhaustible. I think that's true. We're going to read it. I'm going to invite you to get back in it, because we've got to get back in it by reading it and going through it. And then I'm going to pick up where we left off, and then we're going to conclude our time at the Lord's table. You don't need to stand. I'll have you remain seated, but I would ask you to follow along in your Bibles as we walk with these two disciples and the stranger that joins them. Verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene. Who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, all All that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him saying, stay with us for it's getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Father, we ask you to bless this reading of your word. May we ask that by your spirit in these moments you would open our eyes. For we want to see Jesus. We really do. But we can't without your help. In Christ's name, amen. Well, they leave Jerusalem uh, to go to the city of Emmaus, which is about seven miles away. It's a two to three hour walk. When they get to Emmaus... They eat a meal, they turn around, and they go right back to Jerusalem, ending up right where they started. And I kind of use this phrase, while they may not have gone anywhere geographically, right? You didn't go anywhere, but they went light years spiritually. We read this story, and the disciples who went to Emmaus are not the same when they go back to Jerusalem, In Luke's language, they went from broken hearts. Wouldn't you say that? They were broken, broken brokenhearted. But we were hoping to burning hearts that could not wait to say, now I know for sure. I mean, what happened? I think the story hinges on verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They walked to Emmaus. I think they ran back to Jerusalem because of what happens on that walk. You know, I can, I can see without my glasses. I can see. Um, I'm not going to fall off these stairs because I can see them. Uh, I know you're in the room. I see these faces. It's all blurry, literally. It's all, you're all just a big blur to me. Uh, my notes are just gray blur. I can't tell. There's brown spots, big square brown rectangles on the wall. These side screens, forget the words. All I see is uh, orange and yellow on the sides and whiteness in the middle. That's all that I can see, but I, I, I can't make out any details. When I put my glasses on, woo, I can see. Like, like I, I, I would not have been able to pick out Matt and Gigi, but now I can see it's you. But without my glasses, I would have never seen that. I want to suggest that Jesus says to these disciples on the road to Emmaus, you guys need glasses, uh, yeah, you can see, but you can't see clearly. I'm going to tie it this way. If you can't see clearly biblically, then you have no hope. And so they take this walk and Jesus takes them to the Old Testament, talks about Moses and the prophets. Verse 44 says, the law of Moses, the prophets of Psalms, gang, he's taking them from Genesis to Malachi. That's all they had That that, that was their scripture, and he walks them all the way through it, and he hands them a pair of glasses and says, put these on and look what you see. And the glasses themselves are Christ. It's himself. And he shows them that all of scripture is pointing to him. That it's describing him in some way, that it's preparing for him, that it's foreshadowing him, that it's actually explaining him, and that it is fulfilled. All this back here, it's all fulfilled in Christ, in Jesus who walks with them. Jesus seems to be indicating this that hope is when we can see Jesus in all the scripture. Hope is tied to seeing Jesus in all the scripture. Because when we see <coughs> Jesus in all the scripture and we see it's all about him, here's what we see. Track with me on this. That, 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 oh, okay, I see that now. So his death was necessary. Okay, all that's telling me that his resurrection was necessary. Okay, that means his ascension is necessary. That's where we'll go in the next few weeks. And if those three are necessary, then oh my, then the fact that God said he's coming back one day is just as necessary and just as certain and sure. And when he comes back on that day, he's going to set everything right. He's going to make it good. And it's going to be that way forever. Picture it as a chain with four links. See, they're they're interconnected. You can't separate them. And the certainty of the three, by the way, the three are historical for us. So I'm telling you, it's like looking back going, that happened, that happened. We know that happened. The fourth is future, but it's, it's just as certain as those that have happened. I think the essence at its core maybe for hope is knowing for sure these four things. Let me say it another way. I think it's, it's knowing for sure that God is in control. Because that's what we see when we see he promised it, he delivered. He promised it, he delivered. He promised it, he delivered. He promised it, he promised it, he will deliver. You see, you go, well, he's in control of all things. And when we know God's in control, we know that what came before and what is actually happening right now, even in our, you know, just our individual little worlds, and what will happen in the future is actually his Purpose, promises, and plan being worked out in his perfect timing and way. And I believe when that's true, we have something that goes on way down deep inside of us. And I keep this on my wrist. And you guys know what you can't see it back there, what it says, but you'll know this. I got this on my wrist because I, deep down, when you know that, there's something that just goes. It's going to be okay. I'm telling you, there's something that happens in them that has them running back to Jerusalem. And at its core, I think they're going, we thought he was dead, but it's going to be okay. It it is. And they can't wait to tell the others. Now, I actually want you to close your Bibles. So everybody, put your Bible away. I just want you to put it away because you're not going to be able to keep up with me as I hit these passages going through the Old Testament. Instead, I'm gonna ask you to close your Bibles and everybody doesn't have to do this, but this is gonna be 25 minutes of me reading. So you might actually fall asleep. So this would be a good, you know, permission. But when I'm reading, I want some, some of you can close your eyes. Some of you will want to, some of you won't, that's okay. But I want you to sit and I want you to listen. And I'm actually gonna read this because of time's sake, I've gotta read it so I don't digress. I just gotta read right through it. It is gonna be like drinking from a fire hydrant. It's just gonna come at you. And so you'll sit and some of it will pass by you, but some of it will lodge and and you'll go somewhere in your mind's eye. You'll remember, you'll hear, you'll... And that's what I want you to do. And so that's why I'm saying you've got permission to close your eyes, lean back, you know, put your head down, whatever you want, but listen. And I also want you to envision when you hear it, what, what, what might they have been thinking and what does God uh, bring to your mind? Let me see if I can put together some of the passages that Jesus went to. Now, here's what we know. We don't know what passages he went to, okay? But here's something else we know. It doesn't matter, <laughs> Because all of it is about him. So, you know, let's just grab one. You know, boom, that, it's, you know, that's all about him. So it doesn't matter that we don't know specifics. But I want to see if I can't grab a few that he may have gone to. Sit, listen, and let's trust God to open our eyes. Perhaps Jesus took them to the very beginning. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And could it be that he spoke to them about the eternality of the Son of God, that before the world began, he was and always has been? The Apostle Paul will later write in in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. I wonder if Jesus said to them, you see, it was by the Christ and through the Christ and for the Christ that all things were created. And before the first thing was created, the Christ always was and always has been. And maybe he skipped down to Genesis 3.15 where Moses records the promise of God that he would send a savior one day to reverse the curses that Adam and Eve's rebellion incurred. Moses recorded God's words to Satan in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel, no doubt Jesus told them that Christ was the seed. He was the male child born of a woman. He probably said, you notice men, there is no mention of a father in Genesis 3.15 because God would be the father of this boy. Perhaps he pointed them to the cross and he said it's a picture of Satan bruising Messiah on the heel and he reminded them the resurrection. That the bruise was not final. That it was through death that Jesus conquered death. Maybe he went to Genesis 3.21. We're not even out of Genesis 3. He pointed out that God clothed Adam and Eve in the skin of a living animal. And he explained their sin was covered by the death of. Of another. Maybe he cited Abel's sacrifice in Genesis 4 as acceptable because it required death and blood. It could be that he reminded them of Genesis 7 through 8 and he said, You remember the ark of Noah? That ark which carried Noah and his family through the floodwaters of God's judgment was a picture of the Christ. For Messiah would one day come and carry those who trust him through the floodwaters of God's judgment on sin. You know, they knew the story of Abraham sacrificing his only son, Isaac, in Genesis 22. God stayed Abraham's hand and he spared his only son, Isaac. He probably connected the dots for them that the Christ, the only begotten son of God, would be sacrificed by his father. But unlike Abraham, God's hand would not be stayed and he would crush his only begotten son. God would give his son a sacrifice for the many and maybe Jesus says, you guys remember, there was a ram in the thicket. That God provided a ram, a substitute for Isaac. Oh man, the ram was a picture of the Christ who would be a substitute so that man would not have to die. They just finished Passover in Jerusalem and he certainly explained to them that the nation being delivered from bondage in Egypt was foreshadowing what Messiah would do. He would deliver his people from the bondage Of sin and the way that they would be delivered was portrayed in the Passover Lamb of Exodus 12. The spotless Lamb that is slain, its blood poured, or its blood put put all over the doorway. The angel of death passes over every home that's covered in blood. The Passover Lamb's pointing to the Christ. And surely when he said this, they had this echo in their mind of John the Baptist pointing at Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No doubt he took them to the wilderness, the wanderings, and all that the nation experienced there. The manna that came down from heaven, God provided in Exodus 16, the bread of heaven that nourished and sustained them, that bread was looking forward to the bread that would come in Jesus. And maybe at this point, they remembered Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I wonder if he paused there in Exodus 17 to retell the story of an ungrateful people whom God had just delivered from bondage, slavery. They're complaining that God has in fact brought them into the desert to die. They were thirsty and had no water. So God said to Moses, I will stand before you on the rock. And he commanded Moses to strike the rock with his rod. And he probably explained that the rod was a symbol of God's judgment. And as Moses struck the rock with his rod, that was God's judgment falling on God. Just as it would one day fall on Jesus the Son. Because Jesus would take the blow that others deserved. And when the blow fell, water gushed from a rock in the desert. It seems in that moment Jesus may have said what Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 10, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. And I wonder what that picture and that rock reframed in their minds if they did not see in their mind's eye Jesus on the last day of the great feast in John 7 when he stood up and said if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink he who believes in me as the scripture said from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water surely he told them about the serpent on the pole in numbers 21 that Moses lifted up so the people could look on it and live And did they recall when he said it? The words of Jesus in John 3, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. He he must have explained that what Moses began taking them into the promised land, he failed to finish. But it was brought to completion by the man Joshua. Joshua. Yeshua, which is Jesus in Greek, which means God saves. And did the lights go on? And it dawned on them that what Moses, the law, couldn't do, Joshua, Jesus, did and brought them into the Holy Land. How much time did he spend in Leviticus explaining that the entire sacrificial system was merely a shadow of the reality of Passion Week and the cross, every animal's life taken, every ounce of blood poured out, preparing them to see that Christ's life and his blood was the only life and blood sufficient to take away the sin of the world and to impart righteousness and to end the sacrifices forever, He must have camped in the Psalms. For for generations they sang about these words that predicted the Christ. Psalm 22. Messiah will bear the sins of the world. He will be ridiculed. His hands and feet will be pierced. No bones broken. His garments will be gambled for. And he would cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 16.10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Surely he mentioned Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, where David said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And suddenly it came rushing back to them. Oh, they remembered the time that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus and Jesus cited this psalm and he asked them, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one could answer, but it dawned on them because Jesus came from the line of David. And it seems to me he would have spent a great deal of that walk in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah seven fourteen speaks of his birth. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 40, verse 3, speaks of John the Baptist who would come before him. A voice is calling in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah 61, 1 tells of Christ's ministry and work. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And did the disciples remember when he read that and he explained it, did it dawn on them that he read that very passage in the synagogue and then he stood up and said, today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah 52, the Christ is exalted How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and to Zion, your God reigns. But in Isaiah 53, he's the suffering servant. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. And they could not. They could not connect the suffering And the glory. And Jesus says, it's here in Isaiah. It could be that approaching Emmaus, he was just grabbing familiar names. You know, just top of the head stuff that he knew they would know. know. Joseph was hated by his brothers, rejected as their ruler. He was conspired against. He was sold for silver. He was condemned, though he was innocent. And through suffering, he came to glory. That sounds a lot like... Like Jesus, because Jesus is the greater Joseph. Boaz redeemed Ruth. Yes, because he was a close relative and he could afford it. Jesus redeems, for he is the greater Boaz. David, the great king, the greatest king. Oh, he suffered before he entered his kingship, because Jesus would do the same, because he's the greater David. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. Moses was born in, the, in danger of death. He was hidden so that he would live. And he led the nation out of bondage. That sounds like Jesus to me because Jesus is the greater Moses. Did Jesus pause and say, Amen? You can see, I know you can see, but let me help you see clearly. And did he say, do you know it was Jesus wrestling with Jacob all night by the stream Jabbok in Genesis 32? Did you know it was Jesus? In the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. It was Jesus who stood as commander of the Lord's army with Joshua in Joshua 5. And all those judges who delivered the nation, oh, they did it imperfectly. And it wasn't final. Because the greater judge is coming. His name is Jesus who would deliver perfectly and finally and fully. At Christmas, we say Jesus is the reason for the season. And it's true. But Jesus is the final and definitive reason for everything, for everything. He is the centerpiece of the universe. He is the hero of the story He is the hope of all history. He's the ultimate explanation. He is the supreme solution. He's the key to every door. He's the hope of every heart. He is the undeniable, indisputable, irrefutable answer to life's greatest questions. And he alone gives meaning to life. Every person needs a reason to live that includes a reason to die and it's only found in Jesus Christ. So they get to Emmaus and of course they don't want him to leave. Would you stay and eat with us? And he does. And again, here's where like I've got so many notes on just stuff you see here, and we can't get it all, but just a few. You know, hospitality was, it was just so normal for them to invite a guest in, but he's no longer a stranger, is he? So they won't say it till later, but men and women, their hearts are on fire. And they invite this stranger into their home. Now, watch what happens. Jesus is the guest. They are the host. They sit down to eat. And what happens? Who breaks the bread? Who passes it out? You see that? And you don't see those guys going, no, 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 no. You're our guest. Why? He's not a guest anymore. He's Lord. And they know it. They know it. And so they they let him be Lord of the home. And they receive from him. And when they eat, they see him. In Luke 1, two years ago, we read in that passage about why Luke wrote the book and it says that you would know for certain, epignosos, the Greek word. So you'd know for sure. It's the same word. When they ate, bam, they knew for sure. Same word. And then, poof, he's gone. You know, surely they were re- come back! But maybe they remember Jesus. Oh, you remember Jesus said, It's better that I go. Because I'm going to send the Spirit. Even in his resurrected body, he can't be in everyone's life. You see that? So he's had to send the Spirit to indwell us. And here's the mystery of the story He's gone. He's not gone, He's here. He's here. In every page, he's here. And the Spirit opens our eyes to see him. And we see Christ. It's all about Christ. We come to the Lord's table after this, which is fabulous. I'd love the ushers to come down if they would and pass out the bread and the cup. But as they're passing, if I could continue to share a bit with you. I do want you to know this. You know, as a part of this, it's like, ooh, this is the perfect passage for the Lord's table. Well, it is, but not for this reason. Many scholars see in this passage, the Lord's table, that that's what he does. Uh, Others do not. And I I stand with those who do not see this as the Lord's table. So I want you to know that I'm not doing this because the passage is in it, although there's corollaries. They shared a meal. You see, there's no wine in this passage. It, It doesn't seem to be the Lord's table. The context is this. They just walked all day, they're hungry, let's eat. <laughs> and that makes sense, and, and, and they sit down to eat. But, but understanding that culture, eating together was a, you know, it was very, you know, highly relational. And it was like, I like you, you like me. It's kind of like asking someone out. I mean, let's be together. You know, they, he wanted to be with him. They wanted him to be there, and so they shared this meal. Now, I, I read so much, uh, over the last two weeks on this, and no one, no one cited this, and I always hate going out on my own, but I'm going to go out on my own here. Um, you know what? What were they doing in this meal? I, I think it's this. I came to faith in Christ through uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, that ministry, and the Four Spiritual Laws. And the back in the Four Spiritual Laws, when it talks about trusting Christ, I always said you can pray this prayer, and you know, some of you may remember this, but. They also had a passage in the back, Revelation 3.20. Revelation 3.20 says this. Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and, he will, and will dine with him and he with me. And Crusade used that passage as an evangelistic tool, but they always get criticized for it because it's not a, it, that's not the context. It's not talking to non-Christians, invite Jesus into your heart. That's not even in the Bible. It's a passage where Jesus is saying, let's hang out. If you want to be with me, let me tell you something. You're going to get all of me. Let's share a meal because I want to fellowship with you. That's what the context is. And I think that what happens in Luke 24 is described in Revelation 3.20. Now, Jesus doesn't even knock. You know, they, they have, their hearts have been lit up and they want to be with him. And he wants to be with them. And they sit and they share a meal. And in that intimacy, they see Christ. They see him. And I believe it's true for us today. On one level, I really do think this, in sharing meals that, there's a lot of meals happening in the Bible. I think there's something to that. I think in sharing this meal, and you do understand when we take the Lord's table, it's a meal. And we take that which God has given to sustain us, and it symbolically represents that which God has given to sustain us, the man, Jesus Christ take the bread and hold it in your hand Lord Jesus it was you who created the seed that would become the plant that would grow and would be harvested and ground up and made into bread And it was you pictured in the Old Testament when the manna was on the ground and it and the Father fed his people. It was picturing you because the Father feeds us through you. And you, you gave your life. This bread is broken because your life was broken and given. And when we chew it and swallow it, it reminds us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word. And then we realize that you're the Word. The Word made flesh. And so we eat with gratitude. Take and eat. Take the cup. Lord Jesus, millions of gallons of blood was poured out for thousands of years, but it could not do what your blood has done. It couldn't take away sin. And so we hold this cup, the juice symbolic of your blood. And we're reminded of the great cost you paid to redeem us. And our minds race back all the way through Scripture that everything pointed toward this and toward you. And we thank you that you walked in obedience. An obedience that Adam did not walk in. And you secured for us a right standing before a holy God. By your bloodshed. We give thanks. Take and drink. Let's stand together. We'll dismiss. If I can say just a few more thoughts. One thing I find interesting in this story is that when your heart's on fire, you can't stay at Emmaus. You gotta go. But it's dark, it's dangerous. You shouldn't travel these roads at night. Did that matter to them? When your heart's on fire, you gotta go. And I say that to remind us that the missionary impulse of the church, of all the whole church, and our church, it's not Michael and Bill and Lloyd standing up and going, hey, y'all need to go on a mission trip. I mean, I hope you never hear us say that. We don't say it that way. Or you need to go to to this golf tournament. Share your... You don't hear that coming. Because that's not the missionary impulse of the church. The missionary impulse of the church is the gospel, and it's Christ resurrected in us and when we get lit up by that then we see i we couldn't stop you from going we we couldn't hold you back you'd knock me down and go i got to get back to jerusalem and tell somebody that's the missionary impulse of the church we see christ in every page in every story pointing toward him second thing i want you to notice that they went back to Jerusalem and they were telling each other he's risen. He's risen! Hey, he's risen! They were telling each other. In other words, they told each other before they told the world. Which reminds us. And I'm not saying, you know, I don't care where you go to church. It matters that you gather with other believers. It mattered. And it still matters. Wherever you go, you know, that we gather. and we, He's risen. He is a lot. We we encourage each other. And then we go. You see that? And then we go. I went with my eleven year old daughter last night. Had a great time with her, Sally, and we went to see the life of Pi. You know, I don't talk about movies much, but she wanted to see it. We went to see it, Franklin Theater. It was a visual feast and a theological wasteland. And we talked about it. But you know, there's always something in these movies. And he had that survival manual you know, if you ever saw it. And he kept reading that sucker. And it just kept saying, and above all, don't lose hope. Well, let me tell you something. Hope was not, you know, one of the provisions in the bag. Grab this, put it on and don't lose it. No, no, no. See, hope is knowing God keeps his promises. He kept his promise in Christ. And he will one day come back and set it all right. And in the in between time, it's all going according to plan. That's hope. And we need not lose it. You are dismissed.